All right, I'm going to turn and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. All right, this is not a Christmas sermon, by the way. Normally you'd expect to hear this verse in uh, maybe November or December. I actually want to take a couple weeks, hit pause on First Thessalonians. And, um, and talk about what we have coming up in the next couple weeks, uh, the election. And so I'm going to take two weeks uh, to talk about what the Bible has to say about all things political. So um, with that, let's pray, and then we'll get into it. Father, we thank you so much that you are over the affairs of men. We thank you that you are sovereign, that you are in control of all things, that you Uh, lead and guide us every step of the way. We pray, Father, that you would bless the preaching of your word today. Thank you, God, for uh, people taking time out of their schedule yesterday and using their talents and their time uh, to serve this church, to serve you, God, and for the awesome stage we have, for the new and safe playground equipment that we have. We thank you, Father, that uh, we have teachers that want to instruct our young ones Uh, One, so that we can uh, listen to the word uh, with limited interruptions, and two, so that they can receive the word at an age-appropriate level. So bless uh, the word that they're hearing now as well, God. And Father, thanks for being the awesome God to us. You are so good to us. Time and time and time again, Lord, you give us um, exactly what we need. We thank you for your provision and for your goodness for us. Amen. The reason I started with uh, the Isaiah passage was I really wanted to kind of make a, a point to all of us and kind of set the framework today when we look at this, that um, Jesus has this. And it's even interesting, all of the versions, uh, except maybe one, but all the versions in verse 6 um, use the word government. The government should be behind his shoulder. I mean, the idea is is rule, right? He will have the ultimate rule. He'll have the, the ultimate authority. But we need to remember this. I was going to say it's, it's really the backdrop of the conversation, but honestly, it's really the forefront of the conversation. It needs to be both. So as we're talking, what does the Bible have to say about politics? What does the Bible have to say about my civic duty? What does the Bible have to say about my involvement in the political realm? We need at the forefront that Jesus is in control. That he's there. And then in the backdrop, that's what we need to be seeing the entire time as well. Obviously, we need to see that for all things when we're looking and talking about anything of any topic, of any consequence. But I think especially with this, um, I have an, an, one of the apps I have on my phone. It's kind of like a neighborhood app. And, you know, different neighborhoods can post different things. Oh, who's the best plumber? Or, you know, I need someone to build me a deck or something. But then you can also just throw out different comments. And someone was making the comment and saying, I need, I need a new church um, because my church is too political. 
I'll be honest with you, I didn't even buy, there was a, by the time I got to it, there was over like 115 comments. Okay, most of them only have like five or six. That had 115, and <clears throat> for the sake of my um, sanctification, I didn't, I didn't read <laughs> any of them. Because, I mean, honestly, if you think about it, that, that can mean so many different things. Like, I want a church that's not political. Because here's the thing. Any issue that we mention, you could probably say is a political issue. Right? I mean, any type of morality that we're talking about, if we're talk, talking about sexual morality, then you're going to be quickly talking about marriage, and then you're quickly going to be talking about gay marriage. That's a political thing. You start, start talking about justice issues, well, if we want to see whatever term you want to use, but if we want justice um, in our society, um, politics is going to have to play into that in some shape or form. So it is hard to try to, to remove politics, and I actually think for a pastor uh, not to address um, political issues would be really a forsaking of one of the roles of his job, is, which is to preach the whole counsel of God. So, I mean, if a passage deals with a political issues, they need to be addressed. And I think it's appropriate that occasionally one might focus on it so that the whole counsel of God is taught. Um, listen, friends, we have a king. All right? His name is Jesus. So there's, I, I, you know, 160-plus countries out there. Some of them have kings. Some of them have president. You know, they have different rulers. Um, but there's really only one king. And that's Jesus. And this is foundational. Um, if we get this wrong, it honestly doesn't matter uh, what party we belong to. It doesn't matter who we vote for. Uh, we need to make sure we have the number one king in our life, Jesus. And when Jesus returns, I want, I want us to think about this. When Jesus returns, uh, what is Jesus coming back to do? Like, what is he coming back to do? One of the things is to judge, like you said. One of the things is to rule. Like a king rules over his people, right? And in part of that rulership is, is judging, is administering justice. It's righting wrongs. It's making sure the good continues to go on. Uh, friends, and we're getting into it with First Th Thessalonians once we get there in chapter 4. But we have a king, and he's coming back for us. And he's going to redeem his people. But what is that king, King Jesus, going to do? He's going to rule. He is going to rule over his people. If we're his people, he's going to rule over us. Now, here's the thing. What's interesting is that this concept caused problems for the early Christians. I mean, it wasn't a problem for them, but it caused problems for them. Uh, back then, with the Romans, supreme allegiance was to Caesar. And the phrase was, was, was even Caesar's Lord. You could even translate it Caesar's God. So when the early Christians were walking around and saying Jesus is Lord or Jesus is God, that, that was in direct contradiction to what the Romans... It wasn't just like a small little tiny belief off to the side. It was central uh, to their society at that time. So you had a clashing of ideologies. In fact, the Romans probably would have been okay if Jesus just would have been one of the many other gods to believe in, and you just you know, put him on the, the little idol stand along with the other idols that the Romans believed. They would have been okay with that. 
But to come along and say, no, there's only, there's only one, and the rest of those, those are, those are false. That's where the clash began. To say that uh, the one that you say is the Lord, he's not really the Lord. He might be the emperor, he might be the king, but he is not the dominus. He is not the theos. That created problems. And the Christians back then had to make the same decision that Christians today have to make. Um, who is going to be the Lord? Who's going to be the Lord? Jesus or yourself? Jesus or the king? Jesus or politics? So all those things come into play. And as believers, we can't sell out. We can't sell out. We can't sell out to a party. We can't sell out to a platform. We have to remain consistent and faithful to the word. Whatever it says, wherever it takes us, wherever it goes. This is the trustworthy thing that the Lord has given us. We stand on this. We cannot go wrong. My second point is this. Election day is coming. A week from Tuesday. Look at Psalm 62. And I want you to note how this psalm flows throughout. We'll start in verse 1. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Okay, so two times he mentions, you know, God alone, God alone. Then it goes on. How long... Will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, there it is again. For God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. So notice two times, verse 2 and verse 6, uh, after making some pretty strong theological statements about who God is, he's my rock, he's my fortress, I trust in him. What is the response of the psalmist? I will not be shaken. I will not be shaken. So the kingdom of heaven, the day after the election, or whenever they finally decide who won, the kingdom of heaven, friends, is not going to be shaken. Regardless of who wins. Regardless of who wins, the kingdom of heaven will not be shaken. And guess what? Neither should we. Neither should we. We're going to wake up, and whenever day they decide someone has won, um, we're going to have different opinions and feelings. That, that's fine. But we can't be shaken. We can't be shaken. Our hope and our trust is not in a political system. It's not in a particular candidate. It's not even in the United States. 
Okay, it is in Jesus. It is in what he has done, who he is, and, th- and that he is coming back to claim us for his own. This is not to say that elections don't matter. And it's not to say that elections don't have consequences. And it's not to say that elections don't influence the fate of a nation. I mean, we have a president that is about to put a third Supreme Court justice on the bench in all likelihood. In hindsight, uh, the 2016 election truly was a key election in our history. It's been 32 years since the president has appointed and seen confirmed three Supreme Court justices. So elections do matter, and elections do have consequences, and elections do influence the fate of a nation. One of the things that I think is helpful when we look at the, this whole area of politics is to understand um, the different spheres that God has appointed on this earth. You have the church sphere, the family sphere, and then the state sphere. Now, I'll use the terms state or government or civil authorities interchangeably. I remember when I first uh, learned about civil government and hearing the term state, I actually thought it like was referring to specific states, you know, like Missouri or Illinois or Iowa. It was confusing to me. Um, so, <clears throat> uh, but when we use the term state, we're just talking about the idea of the civil government. Um, here's the thing, and this was very helpful to me in my walk with the Lord. Uh, much confusion could be cleared up for believers by understanding these fears and understanding how these spheres interact with one another. So when you think about uh, the state, the state is called to do stately things. And the church is called to do churchly things. It's a word, okay? You can look it up. Don't look it up now, but you can look it up later. Okay, and the family is called to do family things. But... I think what happens sometimes is we want the state to do churchly things. It's true. And sometimes we want the church to do stately things. And so we're not understanding that God has given those spheres, but each of those spheres have defined responsibilities, defined duties, defined roles. Understanding those are important to understanding that when we talk about something like politics, when we talk about something about theology, we understand, okay, this is a task that God has given. Then the question is, who has he given it to? I mean, even if you just think about something as simply as, you know, procreation, I mean, who's that been given to? The family. But you see the state starting to creep in on that and trying to take over. So that's been given to the family. It's not been given to the church. It's not been given to the state. So, I mean, there's different spheres, and God's given them different responsibilities and duties. Here's the thing. God is gracious enough, loves us enough, to put those spheres over us. Think about that for a second. I mean, if you're a believer, you're going to be involved in each one of those spheres. Even if you're just a family of one, you're still a family. You're involved in a church. That's the church sphere. You live in whatever state you live in, whatever country you live in. Missouri, the United States. 
And God, here's the thing that we forget sometimes. God delegates certain things to each of them, but he actually delegates certain things to us as individuals. There's a, a, a fourth sphere that actually isn't talked about too much. Self-government. The self. And so God, a lot of times, and <clears throat> I, think, I think what happens is we live in such an individualistic society, um, we actually think like the self-government is the primary thing. And, and that's how we interpret everything else, you know. Um, and I'll probably get into it next week, but even, even when you t- start to think, and people start, oh, I'm going to vote for this person because of what they can do for me. It's all about the self. That's not how we're supposed to vote, but that's next week. Um, so self-government is, is given to us as well by God. We're, we're supposed to conduct ourselves in a way, and Paul talks about it, Peter talks about it, Jesus talks about it, in a way that glorifies the Lord. Think about this. Look at Genesis chapter 1. So verse 26, chapter 1, Genesis. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What's God doing here with Adam and Eve? He's delegating authority to them. Whose authority is that? It's God's, right? It's his. He delegates it to them. This is called the dominion mandate. It's also called the creation mandate. Two different mandates are given here. Be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, have dominion. But what's interesting to note is two things, and I think this is important. We are called to yield to authority. We're called to yield to it. Authority has gotten a bad rap for a long time. There's elements of truth for those reasons. But it's gotten a bad rap. Church authority has gotten a bad rap. Uh, The state authority has gotten a bad rap. The family authority has gotten a really bad rap. But we're called to yield to authority. We're called to yield to it. Why? I mean, have you ever thought about that? Why are we called to yield to those authorities? Because God has placed those over us. God's placed those over us. Each of those spheres, God's placed over us and commands us to yield to them. But here's the interesting thing when you think about it. So we yield to authority, but we actually wield authority. Wield with a W. So we're yielding to authority, but here, God, we just established God's giving them authority. He's given them the authority to what? To wield it. And so as image bearers, 
In a society that God has placed us in, we yield to the authorities as we should. But as citizens, think about this, as citizens in this country, we actually wield authority. It doesn't matter what's your position or role or place. If you're an adult in this country, you have power. You can collectively vote someone in. You can collectively vote someone out. Right? We have an authority of sorts. Okay, from you, you take it down to the smallest maybe level of government that, that we have. Probably be like aldermen or, or something like that. Something similar in, in your city. I mean, there your vote is probably a little bit, has a little bit more authority, right? Why? Because there's not as many voting people. And But you can take it, you can take it all the way up. And even to the President of the United States, I mean, we collectively have an, as a nation are going to choose who we want to rule over us. And sometimes God gives us what we want. And that's not always a good thing. So we yield to authority and we wield authority. This concept that God sets out and establishes from the basically the beginning of time, he reiterates after the flood. Look at Genesis 9. Starts out verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. So he's reiterating the creation mandate and the dominion mandate. He's you know, so there's, there's God, you know, there's a reset, so to speak. God wipes out the world except for Noah and his family. He can reset things up however he wants. He's God. He sticks with what he originally did. Think about that. With, with perfection before the fall, there's a creation mandate. There's a dominion mandate. After the fall, what's the charge to Noah? Creation mandate, dominion mandate. It's still the same. So a thousand years later, is God setting up the rule again? He puts mankind in charge again. He delegates authority to them. And then he goes on. Verse 3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I give you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, and then he repeats it again, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So he's reminding them of the first covenant that was set up. It's still in effect. My point in emphasizing it with Isaiah 9, my point in emphasizing it here is God has authority and it's his to give as he sees uh, fit. Look at Daniel 
chapter 2. We're going to look at a couple verses just to see this concept. Daniel 2. This is after God reveals Nebuchadnezzar's dream to Daniel. It says in verse 17, Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we ask of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. So here he is under Nebuchadnezzar's reign, horrible, horrible king, and what does he say in his prayer of thanksgiving? In his blessing to the Lord, he removes kings and sets up kings. That's trust in the sovereignty of God, that God knows what he's doing. Look at Proverbs 21. We'll see something similar. Verse 1, Proverbs 21. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Friends, if we believe this, we should be praying for our elected leaders. We should be praying even for appointed leaders that we don't have a, a vote in, like our justices. But we should be praying for them if we really believe that God turns it wherever he will. We should be praying that God would be merciful and gracious to our leaders. I hope you've prayed for our president these last four years. I hope you've prayed for your elected officials these last four years. Every leader, from smallest to greatest, is under God's sovereign reign. And here's the thing. Each one of them, each one of them is called to submit to God. Someday, we, we, we've had however many presidents... Someday, each one of them will have to stand before God and give an account. And someday, all the governors will have to stand before God and give an account. And someday, all the mayors will have to stand before God and give an account. And all the kings from all the different countries, all the rulers from the different nations, they're going to have to account for it. Their rules, good and bad. Here's the thing, friends. Someday, you're going to have to stand before God and account for your actions as well. Some of those presidents, some of those governors, some of those mayors, they have the blood of Jesus covering them. Praise the Lord. They'll be with Jesus forever in unity and righteousness. And a lot of times, we're so um, 
focused on, on them getting their comeuppance and, and so looking forward to the day of, of God returning because of what they're going to get that we forget about what he saved us from. And we forget about what, what he's done. And we forget about that we're going to have to account as well. I mean, the word's pretty clear. We all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Second Corinthians. So we're going to be in that spot too. And if, if you don't have the blood of Jesus to cover your sins, it's not going to be a pretty day. It's going to be a frightening day. That's why when it talks about the day of the Lord, you look through Scripture. We'll do that once we get back in Thessalonians, actually. But the day of the Lord, it talks about it's frightening, it's horrible, it, it's terrifying. But then there's other verses, and sometimes in the exact same verse, it's like, it's an amazing, awesome, glorious day. Well, how can that be? Because you got two sets of people. you got the goats and the sheep. you got the believers and the unbelievers. Unbelievers, it's going to be a really bad day. It's going to be horrible. It's going to be awful. The worst of the worst of the worst days on this earth will look like the best of the best of the best days on this earth for them in comparison. It's going to be awful. The reverse for us is true. The best of the best of the best of our days on this earth will pale in comparison to the amazing awesomeness of that day when Jesus comes back. Look at Romans 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your goods. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. There's like two key things that are, that are discussed here about what the authorities are supposed to do. Protect the good. Punish the evil. And that's kind of the two main things. Protect the good, punish the evil. Basically, administer justice. Administer justice. And think about that. When, when, when Jesus, think about this for a moment. When Jesus was before Pontius Pilate, that, you know, they had a conversation. And, and John records this. I want you to see it. So, so turn there for a moment. John 19 
Let's see, where should we pick it up? Verse 6. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. That's, it was kind of being a little sarcastic, if you think about it. Because it's not like the Jews could take him and crucify him. If they would have done that, they would have been doing something that wasn't their uh, authority to do, right? So he's, he's kind of, just deal with it yourself. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. It, this, this reversal like happens so instantly. Pilate is like, hey, you know, I got all this authority. I can take care of this really quickly for you. And like Jesus like flips it around really quickly. Um, that authority comes from my dad. I didn't really say it like that, but that's the essence of it. You would have no authority unless it was given to you from above. Again, God gives authority, even to someone like Pontius Pilate. He gives them that to rule righteously, to rule justly, to administer justice, to punish the wrong. Think about, and here's the ironic thing to me, um, who's the greater one here, Pontius Pilate or Jesus? Jesus, right? Um, who thought he was in control and was the greater one? Pilate. Who knew he was in control and submitted himself to God the Father? Jesus. I mean, there's just there's irony here. Like, Just like you said, I can call down the angels, right? Here's the thing. Jesus was on a mission. He was on a mission. He was on a mission. And when you're on the mission, you can do all sorts of things, and you can have the power and the authority to do all sorts of things. That doesn't mean you exercise the authority in that particular moment. Think about that. So you're going to have all sorts of different opportunities, and God's going to delegate to you different things and authority. It doesn't mean you just exercise that authority just willy-nilly whenever you want to. Why? Because God's given you a mission. He's given you a mission. And if the mission that you're on doesn't call for something like that at the moment, you don't do it. You don't do it. I mean, most of us, by the time we get saved, are familiar with these stories about Jesus. But if we were watching the movie for the first time or reading the book for the first time, I mean, we're rooting for Jesus. If we're really seeing who, who he is as the Gospels present him, like we're rooting for him. We're like Pontius, he's before Pontius Pilate. Like, yeah, come on, come on, give it to him. Like, turn the tables. Like, do something. Because we don't know the end of the story. But Jesus does. He knows the mission that he's on. And that's where it comes for us, for trusting the Lord. If he has us on a mission, we trust him with the mission that he's given us. We don't take detours. We don't sidetrack. We don't abuse authority. We don't abuse the power. We stay on the mission. And Jesus' mission 
What is to rescue us? What is to rescue us? It was a rescue mission. He came for us. That was the mission. It wasn't to become the earthly king. That wasn't the mission. The mission, he was sent by God the Father to rescue us. Friends, he came to rescue you. He came to rescue you. That's, again, the forefront and the backdrop for everything is Jesus redeeming a people for his own. How does that happen? I mean, read these, read what John writes, read what Matthew, read what Mark, read what Luke writes, read what Paul and Peter write. See for yourselves, like the goodness of Jesus for you. For you. He willingly went to that cross. Wasn't forced up there. He willingly went for you. It was for you. And he didn't have to do that. The Father loved you and the Son loved you enough to covenant together for the sins to be taken care of. The wrath that we read about in a couple verses earlier in a different passage, that wrath is meant for me, that wrath is meant for you, but the wrath is abated. Why? Because Jesus received the wrath. He received it so that you wouldn't have to. You put your trust in Christ. You believe that what he did was enough for you. Friends, that takes some humility. Let's just admit that, that you can't do it, that I can't do it. That takes humility. To admit someone else has to do something for you, that just strikes at our pride. Pride keeps a lot of people from Christ. Let's humble ourselves and realize we needed Christ to do for us what we couldn't do. To save us, to redeem us, to pay for our sin. To get us out of the muck and the mire. Let's trust in him. Let's look to him for our salvation. Governments can promise us all sorts of things. And our government seems pretty good at that. Making all sorts of promises. Both candidates promising things that neither one of them can fulfill all of them. That's probably a good thing. Ben Franklin, as the Constitutional Convention was wrapping up, they had voted, they had put in the new Constitution. There's the often told story, he's exiting the convention and he's uh, approached by someone and they said, so what, what do we have? And, and his reply was a republic, if you can keep it, if you can keep it. You know, democratic republics are not merely founded upon the consent of the people. They're absolutely dependent upon the active and informed involvement of the people for their continued good and health. We just can't crawl under a rock and, 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 and hide in our holy huddles. His statement is true, if you can keep it. So our involvement is key out in the world. And each of us, here's the thing, each of us has various callings. Think of the different callings you have. Uh, If you're working at a job, you know, you have a calling as an employee. If you're involved with the church, you have a calling as a church member. You have a calling as a brother or sister, a husband or wife, a father or mother, a neighbor, a citizen, 
of Missouri and the United States. All of these callings, think about this, all of these callings come with responsibilities. And stewardship of these relationships and responsibilities means directing people to God's glory. Each one of those callings, you have responsibilities. In each position, listen, each position, listen, each position, God's placed you there to direct people to God's glory. What's the chief end of man? I was using the wrong word last week. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. So we have to be careful not to put our hope in the wrong thing. We have to be careful to see ourselves in light of not this world, but in light of the kingdom of God, because that's where we are truly citizens of. We have like a dual citizenship. We're citizens on this earth for a season. Strangers and aliens, yes, but God puts us in states. He puts us in countries. It says that in Acts 17. Amazing passage, right? He has appointed you in particular place for a particular season. And I would add, for a particular reason. He's put you there. It's no mistake. You're born in the United States. No mistake. You're living in here in Missouri or wherever you live. You've been placed there. We have to be careful to not put our hope in the wrong thing. Look at John 19. Uh, we're still there, so just stay in John 19. That works out well. Verse 12, I want you to see this. We go from verse 11. Jesus in full humility, you have no authority over me at all unless it was given to you from above. He could, like I said, flip that situation around real quick. He's on mission. He doesn't. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Think about that for a moment. The Pharisees wanted something so badly they were willing to say Caesar was their king. They were willing to pledge allegiance to him over God. That's putting a wrong hope in politics. And friends, let me just wrap up by saying too often we're concerned and we're fearful of the fires of the enemy. I'm not talking about Democrat or Republican. I'm talking about the spiritual enemy. We're too concerned and fearful of the fires of our enemy of what he will set. And we spend so much time worrying about how we'll put out the adversary's fires. I've been guilty of that myself. I say it's time we start setting some of our own fires. Some spiritual fires. And too often we're in a, um, a defensive stance and we need to be in an offensive stance. And we need to go to war against the kingdom of the enemy, against our spiritual enemy. Okay? The gates of what will not prevail? Hell. Right? Gates, that's defensive if you think about it, right? Gates are a defensive strategy. They're not going to prevail. What does that mean? We're storming the gates. 
We're on the offensive. And let me say one more thing. Persecution. Persecution has been the middle name of the church for 2,000 years. And our forefathers, if you think about it, our forefathers came to America like fleeing religious persecution. And we've had little persecution in America. But when you look at the history of the world, just you know, think about it, history of the world, especially the last 2,000 years after Christ's resurrection, uh, there's a different picture. There's a different picture. And, and we need to be prepared for persecution. I believe regardless of who is elected, the persecution will continue to intensify in this country. I mean, it's already happening. That's where I just like, you know, just blows my mind sometimes. We have such a limited view of ourselves. We just think whatever the United States does, that's kind of like the flavor of Christianity throughout the world. And we forget that our brothers and sisters in China, North Korea, even India now, other countries have been persecuted for decades and decades. Decades. So, I mean, it's quite familiar to them. Quite familiar. And we're just like, oh, you know, persecution, and, and we start reading stuff into Revelation, and the persecution's coming, the persecution's here. It's here. Might not be so much here in America, but it's here. And we got brothers and sisters. I mean, read Hebrews. 10 and 11, we're talking about what was done to the believers of old. That, that stuff's happening today. So, you know, as the King James says, gird your loins for action. Like, we need to be prepared for that. A spiritual battle is coming, and it's already here. Friends, our, our spiritual enemy is not going to relent. He's not going to give up. He's not going to go away. And the devil, he's always going to be there to thwart us, to tempt us, to plague us. So back to Ephesians 6. Let's make sure we're putting on that armor. And God gives us an offensive weapon. Okay? Sword of spirit. Let's use that. Let's take up our spiritual weapons to fight. Listen. We're all going to cast a vote in about a week or so. It doesn't matter if, if we choose the best ruler on this earth if we don't have the best ruler of the heavenly kingdom in our lives. We need Jesus. We need Jesus. And if I could end with two things, it's this. One, uh, the day after the election, we shouldn't, there should be no fear in any of us, regardless of who is elected. We are not called to walk in fear. If our brothers and sisters in those different countries can walk in righteousness and holiness, if the apostles of old can be thrown into prison and persecuted and they're singing psalms in prison, that's, that's one of my prayers, honestly. That if, if I ever got persecuted to the point of getting tossed into prison, I actually think it's a very real possibility, sadly, that I'd be singing the psalms. All right? And if there was any tears, it'd be tears of joy that I'd be persecuted for the name of Jesus. But there shouldn't be any fear. There should not be any fear. What we need to replace any fear that we have with is trust. Trust, 
the sovereign God who we just saw instills leaders. We don't always understand why. You want to know what my prayer has been for this upcoming election? That God gives us the leader we need, not the leader we deserve. If he gives us what we deserve, we're in trouble. If he gives us what we need, he's being gracious once again. That's been my prayer. And each one of us needs to trust the Lord. We're going to go. You need to go. We need to go. We need to vote. We vote for righteousness. We vote for godliness. How does that occur with some of the leaders set before us? Not so easy. We'll look at some of that next week. But we have to go. We have to be citizens of this world. Of this, I mean, let's not say world, let's say of this country. Because we are the aliens and strangers. But we're citizens here with the dual citizenship. So, no fear. Look to your neighbor and say, cast aside fear. Boy, that was pathetic. Come on, y'all. <clears throat> Thank you. Look to your neighbor and say, trust the Lord. All right. That's what we need to do. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you are sovereign over the affairs of men. We thank you that you govern righteously. That all of this you've known before the beginning of time. We do pray, God, that you would give us the leader the president that we need for this country. We thank you, God, that you don't always give us what we deserve. We thank you you give us your grace. It's unearned. It's unmerited by us. But you give it to us, Lord. Thank you for giving us what we need and not what we deserve, which is wrath and punishment. Father, for anyone here who doesn't know you, I pray for them, that you'd speak to them, that you'd draw them to you, you'd give them the gift of faith to know you, to trust you, to see you for who you are. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here. Lord, may we walk in righteousness before you. May we walk in wholeness before you. May we be wise with our words and our actions to our brothers and sisters in Christ our unbelieving friends as we conduct ourselves in holiness in such a season as this. And may it all be done for your glory.